Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Nick Johnston, who's a Canadian guitar player that plays and performs predominantly solo instrumental works. In addition to his five studio albums, Nick has appeared on albums from artists such as Periphery, Polyphia, Intervals, Scale the Summit, Mike Dawes, and many, many more. This guy really has like the silkiest, smooth approach to guitar I have heard out of any modern player. And it's a great episode. Let's get this started. I introduce you, Nick Johnston. All right, well, Nick Johnston, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. It's great to be here. So have you been like uh, locked at home? I was for most, like from the worldwide perspective of how long everyone was locked down. Can't, you know, Canada, at least where I am, especially Ontario, the province, and then going even further inside uh, Ontario into this district that I'm in, this county that I'm in, we were the first city, I think, in, in Ontario where they just opened everything. Just like a couple of weeks ago, everything's just, just wear a mask everywhere, but you can go anywhere. Nothing's closed. Malls are open. You know, you can teach again. You can just do anything as long as you wear a mask. We were like locked down and then we were not locked down. So it was kind of a big binary on and off thing. It was, it was very interesting. <laughs> And where where are you with all that? I'm good, man. I was getting I was getting pretty antsy, um, not because I missed touring or I missed tra- you know whatever. It was just even being somebody who likes to spend a lot of time on on their own and just be creative on my own. I was just missing just being able to go somewhere that I wanted to go, like just go and get a coffee or um, just sit down on a patio and see some friends. And you know, I still I wear like a like a like a neckerchief thing around my. I don't wear like the medical mask because. I find it's almost impossible to breathe in it, but you know, you're all out there. Everyone has like unique, it's like fashion now. <laughs> Everyone with their mask trying yeah. to look a certain way. Pro tip to anybody wearing the medical mask is a uh, mouthwash. Yes. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, I mean, you find out really quick if, uh, if your breath is bad. You, you find out if you have any, you have, if you have any gum disease, it's pretty apparent. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's that might be one of the unanticipated benefits of all the mask wearing is that people's dental hygiene is going to get way way better. Yeah, man, on the stock market, floss stocks are just going to go through the roof. <laughs> Dude, the first time I went out with a mask, I was like, "Holy shit, this is I got to change something here." Yeah, I need to reevaluate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How's it been for your uh musicianship and just creativity to be locked down nothing really changed besides it's funny i've talked to a few other people about this the only thing that really changed was i'm i'm getting semi six seven eight hours of sleep every night now it's you know and i'm not jet lagged you know that's the like jet lag is i don't even know what what he is anymore (laughs) it's been good i have been working on this with a buddy of mine where uh we're both singing and and writing and and playing different instruments on this album and we were doing two sessions over FaceTime a week and you know since mid to early May we've been doing two a week in person again so you know it was only about a month and a half maybe two months where I was just working on my instrumental stuff alone and, and just experimenting and I put guitar on the back burner I was just working on keyboard stuff and just trying to you know develop some new harmony and and do something new you know I put out four or five albums in the matter of whatever that was eight years and I found it just got to the point where I wasn't saying anything new you know I had nothing new 
to to add to the conversation, so to speak. So it was nice to just go, okay, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I put the guitar away. I'll just try and try and work on uh, my ear and harmony and being creative and arranging. So that, you know, that, that has not changed at all. It, it, it just meant uh, I got to do it without having to run to the airport every couple of days. <laughs> you know, I feel like this has been like my biggest point of advice for friends of mine, if they want to hear it, obviously, if they don't, then cool. But my biggest point of advice during this whole thing to like, you know, URM students and everybody is, uh, everyone's in this together. So it's not like anybody's falling behind. Obviously some people are hit harder than others, but this is going to be one of the only times in your life that you get to just have time to work on something. And so if there's something that, that you feel like you've always wanted to do, but life has not allowed you the time to do it, like you're saying now with uh, evolving your ear, this was the perfect opportunity to just nail it. Yeah, I, I, I think if I struggled with anything, it was just, there's this weird thing that happens when I'm given too much time <laughs> is, is <laughs> yeah, like prioritizing, you know, and, and I'm not, I, I'm not the kind of guy that sleeps, sleeps past, you know, I, I get up usually every day at like 8.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning just because I spent so long in my teenage, teenage years staying up till four or five and just getting up at noon the next day and being like, what, 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 what am I doing? You're right. So being in my thirties now, I, I get up early and, and I, I go to bed at a pretty decent time, you know, maybe one or two o'clock in the morning. So I get those seven hours of sleep, but you look at that whole thing and you're like, oh my God, that's, that spread of time is, is just, it's, it's insane. You, I have so many possibilities. Wait, okay, but I have to be indoors. Okay. So, so many possibilities. Now they've been narrowed down to the confines of this house. Okay. Uh, I got rid of social media, so I don't have social, I use it once a week. So I got rid of all that. So I'm not distracted by the phone. And then you're like, okay, now I have all this time to work on music. And then you find yourself going, well, I don't want to work on music all day. Like there's only maybe this hour or this hour. Like you become like, oh my God, I have, what the hell am I going to fill all this this time with? And then when I was younger, I would sit down and do two hours. And then I'd wait again. Then it's two, eight hours a day of working on music. And now it became more of like, okay, when I want to, and when I feel like I have something that's motivating me to do this. And it was a battle of, I have all these hours and I'm not just going to sit at this chair and sit at the piano. I'll find myself resenting it in a weird way. It's like, damn you, COVID, I can't go and play my music or do this and that. I'm stuck here working on music. It's like, I wanted to find a way to, to balance when I wanted to work on music uh, and, and, and not taking for granted the, the, just the open ocean of time I had in front of me. I think I found a good balance. I, I found I was working a lot more at night when it was a little more quiet and not a ton of people around and I had stopped doing all the email because that's the thing. I had this guitar come out, this orange guitar with Schecter. So I was doing a bunch of promo and emails and I did a bunch of podcasts and stuff. So it was still busy during the day, but then it was like, okay, I could squeeze an hour. Anyway, I'm rambling, but the point being, it was just finding that balance of all this free time, could work on music, but do I want to? <laughs> that was the hardest thing in retrospect. So question about that, because you know, you were contrasting that with when you were younger and like the super discipline of like yeah. two hours break, two hours break, two hours break, and like really segmenting that work. Do you think though that, and I know you're a humble dude, everyone that I think is awesome at music is pretty humble about it and i think that's actually probably why they're good at it but do you think that when you're younger 
if you want to reach a certain level, I guess, a certain height with your musicianship, do you think it's better to take that super disciplined approach or only do it when you want to? I mean, like, do you think that because of where you're at, you've kind of afforded yourself the flexibility to follow inspiration more? Oh man, that that's a really good question. That's a fantastic question. And I'd like to, John, I'd like to hear you, you answer that too, after I try and take a stab at at being an accomplished (laughs) guitar player yourself. I'd like to hear what what you think. You know, I think to me, this, this is a relatively easy answer. And that is, I really believe I had no choice. I had no choice, but to, to have that discipline. It was, it was something that took root in me so deeply that I would get levels of, of, um, I didn't know what to call it at the time because, uh, I didn't have the, the, the knowledge of maybe I, I'm, I'm assuming it had something to do with mental illness, but like I had such anxiety when I didn't have the time to play, I would get like kind of sick a little bit. Like I felt, um, if I didn't play the amount of hours, if I didn't mm-hmm. log those hours, I would get sick i couldn't focus i was angry i was sad i was it was a really weird dependency thing i had with with the instrument and music and just being around music and talking about music i was a slave to the guitar i would wake up it was whether you know a a lot of guys i knew first thing they thought about in the morning when they woke up in their teen years was girls or the last thing they thought of was girls or video games (laughs) every day i woke up it was Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. Laying in bed at night, I, I specifically remember going to bed thinking like, okay, I gotta, I gotta work on that. You know, from the time I started playing at 14 until a few years ago, man, it was all encompassing. And I think about that now, and it makes me shudder because there's just no way I could keep up that pace. Nobody can. You can't play eight hours a day unless you are like I'm in a relationship. Like I can't have a healthy relationship if I'm playing eight hours a day. You just like you can't. It's fucking impossible. You can't. You you guys know that. And and um yes. You can't do anything else. Like I literally had no fr- like I had nothing because of the guitar. Like and I only started making a little bit of money off it a couple of years ago too. Like I'm 33. It's like I wasn't doing it for any reason other than I had this dependency on something that made me feel good when I got a little bit better at it. You know, I went through three uh phases so to speak with things I was obsessed with. As a Canadian kid, I was I was a hockey, you know, I played hockey for a long time. And then I had a lot of buddies when it went from April to October in Canada, which is when the nice weather is, you skateboard. You just, you are out all day and you skate. So I got obsessed with that whole world and I got really good at it. And I could, I like, I had a set amount of tricks I wanted to do and I could do all this, all this crap. But then I realized that that had a shelf life and my knees started to hurt and I would break the board and I hit my head a bunch of times, all the bullshit. So I stopped, um, but then it was it was finally where I found music and, and the instrument um, that I was able to go. I mean, this is it. Like this is this is where I'm going to put all my energy. I didn't just put all my energy. I put like all my thoughts. I put all of my free time. I prioritize it over friends. Like anyway, I'm just proving a point that I don't think I could have that discipline. I don't think anybody could have that discipline unless you were like government funded. <laughs> Like the government wants you to play eight hours a day, so you're gonna have to do it. It's like because then the other side of it, you look at it, you go, well, "Why the hell did you do it?" And I, I know I'm not the only one who did that. There's people who played more than I did, but it's like there's no, there was no reason other than just because it made me feel really, really good. Obsession. You need to get obsessed with it. Like I got obsessed about URM in order to make it, and like I got broken up with. 
like my health went to shit and the only thing i did <laughs> was like i quit fucking production that i was like making six figures at like i quit it cold turkey to start urm and that became my life and that's what it was like when i was a guitar player and writing music and uh the only thing that mattered was that and that that's obsession it's just that obsession can be uh you know, it's kind of like a high-powered weapon. So you can point it at something negative. <laughs> like if a stalker gets obsessed with someone they're stalking, that's not a good thing. But if it's pointed towards self-improvement at something you want to get great at, then that's great. I think it also hit at the right time. You know, well, not everybody's lucky enough, unfortunately, but the people who are lucky enough to find the thing at a young age... I don't think I I would have taken music like if I didn't get into it until I was say 25 or 26. I don't think it would have had the same captivation because when I was a young teenager confused and going through puberty and and you know everybody kind of was confused about who they are it's like it gave me it helped define my personality too. It helped me sort of fill in the blanks. Like how do I feel about things and and oh I'm okay with being by myself for a while. That's that void I was talking about. Exactly. But you know what's so funny about all that is I remember when I was, I had just started playing, just started. My dad, he had a, a Joe Satriani CD, Flying in the, Flying the Blue Dream. And he played me Flying in the Blue Dream. He goes, what do you think of that? And I go, I'm like, where's the singing? This is, this is terrible. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get it. I didn't get the instrumental thing at all until, until later, obviously. But um, I will say that when I was writing music, it was the same thing. I guess I got to one point where I felt like I had nothing left to say, which is when I moved on. But when I was doing it for those 20 years, it was the same sort of thing. There's like a deeper feeling inside of you that cannot be verbalized but that is so strong, you have to get it out of you. And for whatever reason, you know, like however your brain is wired, music is the way that it comes out. And it's more than verbal. And the reason I think that that is deeper than verbal is just because, I mean, this is a cliche thing to say, but it's universal. You can play your music anywhere to people from any culture and they'll have the same reaction even though they don't speak the same language as you so i think i think it comes from a deeper place which is actually why i connect with instrumental music more than music with lyrics because sometimes i think lyrics cheapen it because music itself i think is a just this deeper like primal universal thing and that's a cool way to look at it. absolutely it was interesting how i got into i'm just gonna run with what you were saying how I sort Run of with it. found my way into instrumental music. It was 100% an accident, like totally an accident. It's funny you say 20 years because I was as soon as you said, I was like, well, how long have I been doing it? It's 20 years. This I just turned 33 uh, last week. So it's like, oh my God, it's been 20 years. Because I started off air guitaring, you know, with like Green Day and, and Nirvana and, and, you know, when I was whatever, uh, seven or eight years old, 94, 90, 93 just hearing just guitar, just like raw, disgusting, you know, ham-fisted guitar playing. It was just kind of cool. And I always, in my mind, thought if you were going to be a guitar player, you already had to be a famous music. Like, it didn't make any sense in my mind that a guitar player had to be bad at one point. It's like, oh, he's a, he's a guitar player. He's like, you know, my dad listened to a lot of, or always had in the house playing Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all these bands. And hearing Jimmy Page, you know, play Cashmere or something, you're like, well, he's, he's, a, he's a guitar god because like that's, his was his destiny that is what he will always be and i don't just realize not the womb like that yeah it's like i don't ever re i don't ever think that jimmy page had to learn 
fifth fret and seventh fret and go like this. Like I never learned. I never figured out he had to learn what a power chord was or whatever the approximation of that was. Um, but then I discovered my little Play-Doh mind, my little plasticine brain. When I was 15, I heard by accident because I, I had a buddy that had a burned CD from um, Napster, <laughs> a Ingve track. I heard um, Vengeance off of the Magnum Opus record, and I heard the guitar solo in that. And just imagine I went from essentially cutting the lawn with uh, with uh, with hedge clippers to a flamethrower. You know, it's like I went from hearing Nirvana to Ingve soloing. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck is this? Like, are you kidding me? Right. So then, I found myself going, wow, like the prowess and like hearing the the time you could you could hear sound embodiment of time like there's like some i'm sure there's some sort of ingve equation like time and isolation over x equals neoclassical innovation <laughs> or <laughs> something stupid or arpeggios from hell divided by asshole ego or something <laughs> I don't know. hearing that and then i kind of found out this new crop of players when I was in my early teens and that's when I found all the guys from the Shrapnel label you know Paul Gilbert and uh, Richie Cotson Greg Howe Vinnie Moore list goes on Jason Becker blah 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 and I sort of just threw myself in that world but what was so fascinating about it because and it's funny I'm getting like little goosebumps talking about it because it takes me back but the difference was compared to now it's my old man you kids these days but when I was a kid you had to find the CD or the tape, which was where I lived in, in Canada, nay impossible. So when you found one, you coveted it. You got that album or that CD or that vinyl or that yep. um, tape, and you fucking coveted that piece of musical playback. You know, you sat there, you read the liner note, like, what guitar did Paul use? Like, oh my God, it shows the year and the date that they record. This, I think. Street Lethal was recorded from like December 86, December 86 to like, no, it was like December 15th, 86 to December 17th. Like they had two days to do the record or something because they had no budget at, at that record, at that studio. And then you just become, because the music itself, questionable. But when you heard the guitar <laughs> playing, when you heard the guitar playing, and then you figured out Paul's 19 here. He's only a couple of years older than me. Like, oh my, there's this weird self tail chasing thing that started to happen where it's like I, I can do that I can get better I can do that I can, it's going to be who I am like I know I can do this I can play like that I can write like that I can and then all of them had long hair I'm like well, I, okay cool man I can do I can. well I know I can do that <laughs> the hair grows I don't have to practice the hair will just grow and then uh, the one thing that I, I didn't understand till later that, that really helped me form my identity was the whole time I was playing a guitar with, with single coils in it so it, it kind of forced me to, to just inherently sound different than them even though i had the same like oh i want to play that much and i want to i want to sound like that but i never could because i didn't have just the my amp never my gear never set my hands never sound like it so i I learned early on you know there is a separation point here and i'm also left-handed so my picking hand was always really messy anyway i'm just saying all of that stuff you know just just getting so deep into that and, and and then eventually coming out of the other side of it you go like oh i guess i'm I'm writing music like that because you are what you eat. And the music I was writing, I have old burned CDs from when I was like 17. I used to submit to to the Mike Varney guitar player column and a few different col- I remember getting into a few few different columns because of the just the sheer 
just, I mean, I listened back to some of it not, not too long ago. I was laughing. It was, it's so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> I listen to myself play now and I'm like, wow, I was far more, my guitar playing was far more technical, far more kind of outrageous when I was 17 years old. But it's just, that's where my head was. And then you come out of it and then you, you, you're, oh, I'm writing instrumental music. That plus I didn't have anybody. Around. I grew up in a small town of like, you know, less than a thousand people. So there weren't a lot of musicians and singers and all this. And then I remember taking, I'm just rambling here, by the way, but I remember taking um, a couple songs to a buddy of mine who was releasing music. And uh, he listened to the, he was older by about 20 years and he listened to it and he he was like, okay, I, I, I like, your playing sounds good, but I'm afraid you're going to go down the same path as those guys and come to your shell when it's too late and, and you, you don't have any songs. You never learned how to write melodies. You never learned how to understand arrangement. So he gave me a project. He goes, I want you to go home tonight and come back to me tomorrow with a brand new song with no guitar solo in it. That little project changed everything because I had to go, well, if I can't solo, then what the fuck am I going to do? Oh, there's these things called <laughs> melodies. There's these things called verses and choruses. It was a hard lesson at the right time. And I, and I, I grabbed onto it. And then from there, just everything you know started changing. And I, I started to kind of develop themes and, and melodies and understand harmony. And you know the bluesy stuff in my playing had more of a focus in certain spots. And then I could take that out and weave it in. It wasn't just, here's the, the eight-finger tapping lick I'm working on. It had that, you know, that's gone now. That shit doesn't matter anymore became about, about melody and stuff you know and that was 15 years ago you know one of the big critiques of instrumental guitar playing and uh i feel this too is that it, it can be very boring because it becomes very self-indulgent and i feel like a lot of the times it's just style over substance but the ones that tend to stand out have figured out how to transcend that i mean there's a whole ocean of dudes who have not transcended that who are just like impressive like like athletic athletically speaking but i feel like uh those that have figured out how to actually make music with it that's like the difference between truly great and not with instrumental i couldn't agree more with that i think what's scary right now is the influence not to just jump into this because this is this is an old man topic as well but the influence of what all these apps have done is they've made it seem like you need to get involved in this and you need to start releasing music as soon as possible. You need to throw your hat in the ring. Whereas I look at, I'm like, man, I didn't rush to get anything. I marinated and I worked on my sound and I worked on what I wanted to write. And I worked on my ears for like, I mean, I didn't release my first album for at least a decade since it started from, or my, my, for a song or anything it was like so much research and so much trial and error and so much bullshit had to had to be removed i had to just sift through just stacks and stacks of feces to get through all that you know and i feel now it's just like people aren't giving themselves the introspective time you need it's like there's a thing that happens when you when you publish your video or you're playing on instagram and you just you refresh it and you try to immediately check it's like if you can get rid of that need, like just ask yourself, is this good? Like, did I need to do this? Is this musical? Is this, is this a statement? I'm guilty of putting up videos I'm just noodling. Of course, who isn't? But when I, when I release stuff, I, like, I have to just remember, like, am I getting this out just because I need stuff out? Or is it like something I'm trying to say and something I'm, I've developed, something I've worked on? And, 
and thought about and was introspective with and showed to other people that I respect and got their feedback and this and that. Because I write with the door closed. I always write with the door closed. And I'll, I'll you know, maybe I'll come back, maybe some production stuff with the door open. So, you know, that's like, that's the whole Stephen King thing where he talks about where he, the first draft he writes with the door closed and the second draft he writes with the door open. I, lo- I love that mentality. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before of being an artist versus a craftsman. So the that point in time, you know, that, that feeling side of it, that's the creative art side of it. And that is what you create in that point in time will always be that. But then how you refine it, that's the craft. And you could either refine it to death and kill it, <laughs> or you can refine it just right, like Michelangelo carving something and do it right. But I think that whether or not it gets overdone and killed is basically in how good of a craftsman you are, which is tough. Yeah, I guess it's also just where you are in your life as a musician and how old you are and the the things you value, how you approach all of that. Right now, I guess I'm really into that mindset of don't rush to put it out just because you kind of said something interesting earlier, Al, where you said you didn't have anything left to say. I feel right now, I I have nothing to add to the, the ethos of instrumental music. Right now, I have nothing new to say. I'm like, okay, I'll just wait until something something new sparks my interest or my ear shifts in a different direction. From album to album, I see noticeable differences where I was putting sort of, and as instrumental as an instrumental musician in, on those records, harmony is a huge part of it for me. I see very solid chunks of time where I, I was thinking of this, these are the kind of progressions or these are the kind of melodies I value. And maybe on the first album, it was more bluesy based than as it evolved and and right now I'm I'm kind of at the beginning of, of seeing a new stage happen and I'm writing a lot of really terrible music right now. And I'm aware of that. I'm like, okay, I know this is not the end point for this new thing. <laughs> so I'm kind of at that point where it's like, okay, I may not have an album out for a couple of years and maybe that's bad for my existing fan base or that's bad for the landscape or whatever, but that doesn't override my thought process for how I should proceed as a musician. You know, it's 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 really coming down to, do you have anything new to say? No. Then shut the fuck up. <laughs> Man, there's there's kind of nothing worse than an artist phoning it in. Yeah, it's true, man. Especially the, after five or six albums, right? It's like, don't do it now, dude. Like, especially when you don't have to. <laughs> there's no one breathing down your neck for an album, so don't do it. I don't think your fan base wants you to phone it in. So... I know that fans pressure artists to make more stuff, but I think that if the fans, especially the super dedicated ones, had to choose between waiting a little longer or getting something phoned in, they would choose waiting a little longer. And perfect example of bands who pull it off are like Tool, Meshuggah. Like there's so many examples of bands that take their time. But the key factor, I think, is that they have something that they've already done that people love. And so they're, there's like this understanding. Like, yeah, there's a trust. Yeah, there's a trust. When these guys take their time, it's not because they're fucking around. It's like <laughs> they need to take their time. So, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing. No, I don't think so either. It's really not even that long. Either. A couple of years is not really that, that big. There's so much music no. coming out every five seconds. Like, oh my God, man. It's like get lost in some new stuff too. you know, listen to as, as much as you can and just, you know, just be aware of what's coming out every, every day. You'll never, you'll never run out of stuff to listen to. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. And then podcasts, man, like everyone's listening to podcasts now. So, you know, I do, I listen yeah, to, great. I listen to tons of podcasts, sometimes more than music for sure. 
switching gears a little, I want to hone in on something that you said earlier, because at Riff Hard, our whole thing is rhythm guitar and the importance of picking and which is something that's neglected a lot in like the guitar education space. So you said you're left-handed and therefore your picking hand was sloppy, but yeah. <laughs> clearly it's not sloppy anymore. So how did you tackle that? Like what, what kind of stuff did you focus on? What was your approach? Right. So left-handed, but I play, I play right-handed. So just, I think just based off that alone, uh, Obviously, the strength being more in the left hand and the right hand, which is usually the engine room for a lot of rhythm guitar and just picking and being on time and dynamics and, you know, watching John play like with a lot of that downstroke uh, intensity, like that's that's all that coordination, which I never I never really had. And, you know, I have I have since worked on it quite a bit, but it's never really gotten to where I wanted it. My whole thing, this is going to sound really bad, especially when you're talking about education. My whole thing with with development as a guitar player <laughs> was running from my weaknesses as fast as I possibly could. Well, let me stop you for a second. I <laughs> I don't think that's a bad thing. You remember when you were talking about how Jimmy Page, you never thought about Jimmy Page learning like the fifth fret and the seventh fret. Well, the thing is about those guitar gods, you never heard them play what they were bad at, right? You only heard them play what they were great at. Exactly. I guarantee you that those guitar gods sucked at certain things. Sure. Yeah. That's a well-kept secret. <laughs> Imagine Ingve playing like a giant an steps. actual classical guitar <laughs> piece or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, or giant steps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you only, you only know them for what they're great at. There's something to be said for following what you're inclined to do. That's kind of like a dirty, like a taboo topic for a lot of people that are developing is a lot of people don't want to hear that they don't want to know that that's okay like it's okay to be bad at all this it's okay to suck at this but it really is okay it's fine it's totally fine man um so my whole thing well, as long as you rule at something else that yeah as long as you're working hard at at, uh, at at what you what you like and and my whole thing was just i played so much that the things i like it was like instead of climbing over the wall like instead of climbing over the wall being proper steps with with tuition and okay, here's the way we're going to get over the wall. My thing was to stand in front of the wall and smash my head into the wall a million times until I broke through the wall. <laughs> I just kept beating over and over and over again just by sheer amount of time spent with the instrument and finding little little shortcuts. And I got really into, um, without even knowing, and everyone, it's called hybrid picking now, but I was playing a lot with my middle finger as the as the upstroke just because I I just couldn't, my right hand was just so uncoordinated that my I looked down one day and I was just using my middle finger to add as the upstroke when I crossed the string. So whenever I crossed the string with an upstroke, it was my middle finger plucking it. And then I found this kind of balance between picking some of the notes and hammer on pulling off um, the rest of them. So there was this kind of whipping motion in how I how I played. My left hand got real strong and I developed these patterns. But man, some of the things I play, if I slow them down for a student when I was teaching, I can't slow it down because it's a muscle memory based thing because I was just doing these things over and over and over again, just trying. And then it would just naturally clean up over hours, just over the, the maintenance and the, the reps in the gym. But it was never like, sit down with the metronome. We're going to clean it up. We're going to think about the groupings. We're going to think about where it lands on the one. No, it was just, let's just do this a billion times until it starts to it was like you're drawing five staff lines on a sidewalk with chalk and then throwing like rocks down and like oh there's a melody it's like it was just completely accidental it was just like 
that, that, fuck it, let's go with that. And then it just cleaned it up and just made it work. My biggest thing I would say to developing the technique was I played with very low gain. I always had just enough gain to where it gave me some, I want to use the right word here, some lube. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> enough gain to give the notes lubrication, but not enough to where I, I couldn't hear every every click and pop and every... Kept you honest. Yeah, and I used single coil, so I had to I had to hit real hard, but I ran away from like timing for for years, like really thinking about your rhythm, really thinking about, is this the right, like, I didn't know theory. I didn't, like, I just, I just wanted, I just wanted to have a little sandbox, like my own little, ah, if I'm going ha- gonna to hang out here, I'm going to go over, fuck around here, I'll build a castle. That was my guitar playing, but I did it for eight hours a day. So you can imagine being in a sandbox, you'd be, you'd, after eight hours for a decade, you'd build a pretty nice sandcastle. It's just you're fucking around, right? Uh, and then what happened was I started to, to talk to these musicians who knew words like Lydian and Dorian, I'm like, who are these people? Who are, who's Dorian? And and what <laughs> happened was like, I couldn't have a conversation with musicians. I couldn't have. They're like, I met a piano player, and they're talking. Oh, okay, so this is an uh, an F chord, but I'm putting the sharp eleven in the top, or I've got, you know, and then we're substituting to an E flat. And, oh, that's key. It's modulation. You know, I'm like, what the fuck? So I got really frustrated because like I loved music so much, but I couldn't. I didn't know the language. I didn't speak theory i didn't speak it so i went out of my way to work on that for for quite a while i remember getting books and the library writing things down and talking to people i remember being in school in the cafeteria writing out 13th arpeggios like like what the diminished and and really throwing myself into that and then once i understood more of that and how things connected across the neck it stopped being just about getting these patterns and bullshitting my way through and i started to be able to to look at it and go oh this is what i've been doing this is what key i'm in i can apply it to these things and just slowly over time just slowly, things started to clean itself up, and then my timing got better, and I started playing to drum machines and just improvising over just a static groove. Thought about timing and what's my guitar tone, my guitar tone then dictating how I played, as opposed to how I play should work with any tone. It's like, no, no, no. All these things started to, to change and coalesce in different ways, but it was never the sort of learn something properly and then speed it up slowly and then move on to the next thing and, and then double back and get it and tighten it up. It was it was spastic, man, like a Jackson Pollock painting. I just threw shit, you know. Fucking well, there you go. It was it was really spastic. And that's why I need that's another reason why I needed to play so much because I just didn't see the through line. I didn't see the you know some people just get math. They look at fuck yeah man, I get advanced math in grade 10 there's a guy in grade 12 advanced math and he's just like what? He he still smokes a joint at school cuz he's so, he does he doesn't think about it. It's like <laughs> I was like, man, I don't get any of this. It was the same thing with, I didn't, fucking brutal, because I couldn't focus. That's why I need so much so much practice. And then, that's why I say, like, I use that visual of, like, I see people beside me with a grappling hook going over the brick wall, but I'm just like, I don't have the grapple. So I'm just banging my head until it's just, oh, okay, there's an opening. I'm going to get, you know, that was my whole my whole development process, <laughs> was smashing my head against a brick wall. Yeah, we've got like one group of like the Jason Richardsons and the Wes Hauk style dudes who do the the super regimented thing and they're incredible. But then we just talked to Andy James a couple of days ago who oh, took your Andy. exact same method. Man, I had such a good time with Andy. He's hilarious. That guy's funny. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, he's hilarious and phenomenal. And it, it just goes to show that it's one way isn't, better than the other but the thing that matters is that either way you go you have to play a ton 
and like be super focused. That's the what matters. Yeah. But you know, one thing that you don't think about what people forget and what you don't realize in, in, until years later is the entire time you're playing and, and whether or not it's you know Jason's way or Andy's way, that different methodology, the thing you're developing is your ear, is that thing where it's like you just have an understanding of, not to boil it down to something as simple as this, but does it sound good? Like what I mean is having good pitch and good intonation and good vibrato and good touch. Like these are things that are invaluable and these are fingerprints of every single guitar player. How you get into a note or or when you hear a chord on the piano, where does your ear go to? Like these are things you're developing passively without even thinking about it. And that that comes from, I think, just the sheer amount of time around music and listening to to sound waves and notes and and talking about music and hearing other people and that's all happening. That shit, it just comes with with uh, with the whole package. And I was lucky enough to look at myself and go, is you know, is this good or or does this sound good or self awareness? It oh, feels so good to hear a word you were thinking of, but couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I developed that real early. That's what I'm I, here for. I just, yeah, I had people around that that were just much better than me, and, and and I played in this world music band as the rhythm guitar player from the time I was 20 to like 25, and you know, this is my first real experience playing live, and and these guys were in their 40s at the time, you know, they're twice my age, and they're just constantly shitting on me like your rhythms, your rhythm sucks. Like, okay, now you got to play over these changes that. You know, tritone substitutions and and play secondary dominant chords and all these different harmonies that I'm like trying to play over and they're just like they're laughing like he blew it tonight I'm like yep <laughs> you know just like I was pretty browbeaten early on so I was I was like okay I know I know what I need to work on and and it was that whole process was fun though I'm I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna hate about any of that it was fun man getting put in your place well fear itself like what a great motivator for for becoming a better guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> Get your shit together, Nick. Okay. <laughs> or you're out of the band, you know. I got to say, fear, it's interesting because I see this in the Riff Hard group. I see this in the URM group. I get emailed about this all the time, hit up. People asking about motivation, like, how do I get motivation? I'm like, how do you not get motivation? Like, do you not have, like, this terror <laughs> inside of you that if you don't get this done, like... You're fucked. You're fu- <laughs> and I've heard like Will Smith say this too. So it's not just us weird musicians like yeah. <laughs> like Will Smith talking about how he became like, you know, Will Smith. And I think Jamie Foxx has said this too. Terror. Pure fear. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, man. Can you imagine being on a multi, multi, multi-million dollar film set and like having a... Uh, a monologue like holy fuck man like no i can't <laughs> playing a guitar solo in in front of a crowd of 150 prog nerds with their arms crossed is nothing it's fucking nothing <laughs> you want to talk about fear oh my god so on the topic of fear one thing that i've always told people is and this is not just like fear of performing like i think a lot of people have fear of like getting a project started right fear oh, of yeah. releasing music mm-hmm. yeah just like fear of everything related to possibly failing at something one thing i always tell people is just say fuck it and do it like because that fear like you're saying if we're saying that people like will smith have it you guys have it i've had it pretty much almost everyone i know except for psychopaths have it <laughs> Like, yeah, psychopaths don't have it. And so they got the advantage in that department. But if you're not a psychopath, you're going to have to deal with fear. And there's plenty of people who have done all right despite that. And I think that the 
the best way to go about it is just say fuck it and do it anyways. Just ignore it. Just fuck it. The fuck it clause is, is a good one to enact every so often. You know, there's there's other things too that I find plague me and that is I get this weird thing sometimes when I'm when I'm starting something, when I'm recording something, I get this like this kind of sadness. It's just like a part of me knows that and this is jaded as, as hell. So anyone listening to this, just take it <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But like part of me goes, This will never be as good as what I'm hearing in my head. It will just it will never ever be as good as what I'm hearing. And I just get like, it's like, oh, should I keep doing it then? Like, if it's just, like, there's this weird self, there's also, I'm an, an emotional mess at the best of times. So like, I go through all this stuff or, I, or I'm on a, on a flight somewhere and I'm not, I'm not afraid of playing. Or I'm not worried of playing. And we're, it's just more so like, I'm sad that I'm away from the house or I'm away from every, like, there's all these things, or like you go and do a session. Maybe you have to fly to a different country and do a session, and you're on a di- you're on different gear. And maybe you and the engineer or the co-producer had a bad fight one time, or you heard he's talking shit about you, but you don't want to bring it up. And you're just like bombed out, and you're just like, why am I fucking doing this to myself again? Like what? That that is a weird thing with all that too. And then you start thinking about as a musician without a stable job, you start thinking, man money would be really nice like i would love some money you know like there's just there's a million <laughs> fear fear is a part of the recipe but but a lot of times it's just general and then dude other things like for example it's like you'll get really happy about something now this this sounds insane so again bear with me you get really happy about something <laughs> but then you get bummed because you know you can't sustain that excitement about this idea for more than a couple oh yeah you know what i mean there's all sorts of these yes. weird <laughs> there's these weird little landmines that you're always oh shit there's one right there oh shit there's one right there you know and i'm type 1 diabetic so like for me my main focus of life is always just like what's my blood sugar what's my blood sugar is it high is it low am i feeling good this and that so like there's there's like just health shit. It's like a computer with too many windows open. It's just like, oh, that window's still running. And there's a lot. Oh, man, like the bandwidth on that website is way too high. And all these other ones are like just living somewhere in the background. It's like there's so much stuff <laughs> constantly running. And then, and then, if that's not enough, then you're always just second guessing yourself. You're just, is this good? Why did I do that? What the fuck was with that guitar tone? Why did I hire that drummer? There's just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's so much going on. We're complicated. Dude, I relate. I relate. It's like this constant battle with this voice that just tries to tear everything down in this weird way. Like, I get this. So I travel for Nail the Mix every oh, single yeah. month. And yeah, that's doing, cool. Doing that's cool shit. Like, yeah, that. I, like goals. Like, we've accomplished a lot of goals. But then every time I'm about to leave... I just get kind of like, why the fuck am I going? Like, I don't want to go. And then I go and it's fine. But like, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And I feel like a lot of my life is figuring out ways to combat that voice. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I don't think you're alone in this. No, definitely not. Because I've talked to lots of other, other people, uh, one guy I'm really, really good buddies with, we've had long discussions about the idea of leaving the house to go and be away from everything and, and everyone. And Because David's, David's truly, a, like, he's a homebody. He likes to work in his studio. And, and we've, you know, genuinely, when I get going, like, when I get touring and I get, 
my schedule and I'm, I'm in the, in the heat of everything, I'm fine. I'm good to go. Right. It's just when I get too much time where I've been pulled out of the bubble, you know, that bubble and I'm like, I'm out of it now. That to me is the hardest thing. It's just getting that mindset back. I get the same thing when I have to leave trips too. Oh, like when oh, the trip, yeah. like if I'm at the end of a trip and then it's time to go back to the airport to go home, I'm like, fuck, do yeah. I really want to go home? Do I really want to go and home? And then I, so, sometimes I'll put the flight off a few days and just <laughs> stay in a hotel. Yeah. It's so weird. I, I don't understand where that comes from. So basically, it sounds like for you, the way to fight it is to just get into the routine, like just yeah. basically jump into the cold water and do it. Yeah. Well, that's again, that's that whole thing of like, fuck it. Let's, let's go. Like, come on, let's go. Let's, let, let's get started. I also love the idea a, a lot of times. And I love the idea of sort of crystallizing all these thoughts you had in your head when you were younger of like, oh, I, I can't imagine what I'm going to get to do. Am I going to travel? Am I going to be relatively successful? Am I going to get to play? Like you're doing it. Okay. Remember you are now doing that thing that you wanted. You, Nick, you're doing it. Hey, over here, look at me. You're doing it. You know, like that whole thing. <laughs> it's like just remembering that you're on this path and you don't have to be here if you don't want to. Like you don't have to do it. You can go home. You can get a job. Asshole. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know what I related to? I'm a huge, my, one of my favorite just art forms in general is, is stand-up comedy and, and how much of an isolating oh, yeah. thing that journey is for those. Like I love, you guys probably, you guys know Bill Burr. I would assume you guys maybe know. Oh, Burr. yes. Yeah. So Burr is like oh, a 30-year yeah. vet in the game, right? You listen to him talk about the old days when he would go and do the college campus comedy tours. Where he would just go into the lunch hour, like at a college campus in the lunchroom, and they would just say, okay, we don't have a mic for you, but you're going to entertain these kids. And he had like an half blonde, <laughs> blonde curly hair, and he's, or um, red curly hair, just like looking like an outsider, right? And he would just go up there, and his whole thing was like, just fucking get through it like just in like he's like i'm driving back from somewhere in idaho to new york and just yelling in the car the whole way home i'm like there's something self-deprecating and something like you're putting the work in there's something valuable to you've done the hard thing you you did the thing and you didn't have to and and it everything was working against you but you did it there's a valuable personal gain i think from that you know just like like for example you guys know just just virtue of getting up in the morning getting your shit packed and going to the airport and just getting to the place. Like that's even that alone is like, holy fuck, man, that was a lot of work. <laughs> that's just getting to the place. And that's like, that has nothing to do with your skill set. But then you realize, well, yeah, I've developed the skill set to get to the place, which is like, wow, I have another unique skill set that came with being a musician. It's just a weird thing. Like I find, I find the, the grind and I find the process and the, the mentality and being a strong-minded person to be able to do this, whether or not you're on your own or with a band, it doesn't matter because even with a band, sometimes it's harder because you just want everyone to shut the fuck up sometimes. <laughs> All of this stuff I, I find really, really interesting and really valuable, even though it's sad <laughs> sometimes to get started on it. You know, like you hear these comedians talk about it, and, and I've done it too where it's like, John, you've done it too, and I'm sure we will both do it again at some point where you go and tour for no financial gain, you, you you lose money, but you still have to uh, you still have to do it, and it's and when you're doing it, you're like it's great, but then you're like I hate it, I love it, I hate it, I hate it. It's just but you have to do it. It's just like it's part of the thing, and you develop as a person, and you change, and you grow, and that's at the heart of it for me. Is like you know what it is, man. If you're on the outside, all you see are the results. You see the cool stuff, and so if you're on the outside, you have a very one-dimensional view of what the big 
picture is like the reality of actually doing something. But if you're actually doing something, I mean, life is not one dimensional life has, there's no such thing in life. That's all good or all bad. There's going to be multiple facets to everything. And so to pretend like every single aspect of it is cool. Like, yeah, we get to do this thing that we worked really, really hard to do that. Not many people get to do, but to say that, every single aspect of it is the dream or something like that would be disingenuous. Absolutely. And just, we'd be bullshitting. <laughs> yeah. If we I can't were even saying pretend. That. I like, can't even pretend. Yeah, exactly. This shit's complex, <laughs> but obviously the upside is high enough to keep doing it, but there's no way to honestly say that it's as simple as we get to do this cool thing. So just, just appreciate it. Don't think about any of the stuff that's not cool about exactly, it or any yeah. of the stuff that like fucks with your head about it. Just ignore all that. It's not real. Just be happy that you get to do this thing because you're one of the few. That would be kind of, how are you actually supposed to do that? <laughs> Absolutely. Well said. <laughs> I think a lot of people look at these goals much in the way that someone will look at moving to another town as like, you know, that idea that I'm going to move to another town and my life's going to be different, which is not true. Like, cause you're still taking you with you. And so whatever problems you caused where you live now, you're going to probably create similar situations there. And so <laughs> if your brain has a tendency to be fucked up, Unless you actually fix what's fucked up about it and do that work, you know, like therapy and self-help and all that shit, you're still taking your brain with you. So, and your brain is uh, the same regardless of your external circumstance. If you're so shallow or weak that your external circumstance can actually change you that much, then, uh, I mean, good for you and you're lucky. But I think it's kind of naive to think that something as shallow as a circumstance like getting to fly first class or not is going to be the difference between you being happy or not. It, That's really well said. Yeah. We're way more complicated than that. And so, yeah, obviously making more money is better than making less money, but the, whatever pathology you've got or like mental deficiencies, like money and first class are not changing those. So, and not to get morbid, but the reason that you see successful people still commit suicide is precisely because of this like becoming successful doesn't change who you are like i think a lot of people think i'm just going to accomplish these goals and then i'll be happy or the void will be filled and then uh, they get there and it's like i'm still me i still feel the same but i did all these things so what the fuck there's no hope I really believe that because of, of all the, like, you know, we're talking traveling and, and whatever, first class, that whole thing, which, yeah, it, it is it is very nice to, to, to go to the front of the plane with everybody in the suit when you look like I do and they look at you like, the f that's <laughs> that to me is the best part of first class. It's just that, like, incredulous, like, the fuck is this guy doing? No, what are you doing <laughs> yeah, here? Yeah. But, you know, like going to going to some of these countries and just seeing – just seeing things that that you would just would have never seen, or or traveling, and and because you know you, you're only on stage for an hour, right? It's like it's how you live your life those 23 hours, and can you be content with where you are? And I always look down at the map, like where am I on the map? And I picture it myself with a tether back home, and the further I go away, like that tether, it, it starts to feel like I'm further out in the ocean on a boat by myself. I'm like, okay, st remain. Like, can you still be happy with who you are out here? Like, remember, you're going to go home at some point, but just like, can you be generous? Can you be kind? Can you take the time to meet everybody? Can you have a good conversation, go for a nice dinner, and, and just remain, remain yourself wherever you are? 
because you know we've all seen you go you go somewhere and, and the guy's there and you can tell he's fucking miserable and he doesn't want to be there and he's an asshole and you just have a bad mental image of this person. It's like whenever I go somewhere, I try, okay, work on yourself. Like try to be, try to be the same as you are at home. Try to be a nice. Per- it doesn't always work, of course. But it's like I feel like me traveling and, and doing that and and meeting all these people and having these situations while jet lagged and feeling sick. It's almost like uh, running around the block with weights on. It's like these things feel like I'm it's pulling me down, but I get I get to still work on myself and I still get to try and continue to develop as a person because it's not just you're going to play guitar. It's like you, you're still you and you have to you have to bring something to the table. It's you just you're not going to be coming back. It's like it's not going to happen anymore. So you talking about just you know you taking yourself everywhere. It's like I I feel like that's a that's a thing everyone forgets. It's like just because you're going there. Does does it mean you don't have to to try and be a good person and a and a nice person and and communicate with others and be someone that people want to be around? Even you know that's a that's a huge thing for me because you know especially if someone's paying all that money for you to be there, it's like try and be a good person. <laughs> you know, try and take a nice version of yourself out there. It's hard, man. It's really really hard, especially when you're hungry and jet lagged. Oh my god, get the fuck away from me is all you want to say, right? But. It's all part of the process, man. It's a huge, huge learning process. And even at, in mid thirties, it's like I'm not even close, I'm not even close to where I want to be. Long, long way to go. Do you have any like uh, rituals or like things you do when you are in the moment and you're not quite in the right frame of mind to like snap yourself out of it, or is it more like just a daily discipline of trying to not to sound woo woo about it, but like have a little gratitude or like, do you do something to get yourself there? Absolutely. I forget. I mentioned being diabetic. I find I'm completely ruled by, you know, I have my glucometer with me all the time and test strips and my insulin. I'm fully, fully ruled emotionally by where my numbers are, you know, being, are they too high? Which means you, you know, your blood sugar's through the roof and you're, you're, your mouth is dry and you have to go to the bathroom all the time and you're sweating and you're confused and, and versus if it's too low, then you're shaky and you can't even hold a fork. And like for me, getting it right in the middle, like that balancing act. But if I see, okay, before we go, I'll check, you know, you can't see it, but my fingertips have like pinprinks all over them from, from checking my blood. It's like, I'll look at my blood sugar. If in the morning, if it's too high, I like start off. The, it's like, oh, fuck. It's, oh, no. Like it's going to start off. Okay, hang on. What do you need to do to get it there? Like, it starts off with that extra worry just off the top. Or if I wake up, like I've woken up in hotel rooms in the middle of the night with blood sugar so low, I'm like, I stand up and I first I just fall down. I'm I'm on the floor, like it's horrible, and I'm sweating and I'm like shake like shaking, and I hope to God in my backpack I have one more apple because that I stole from the lounge before I got on the flight. Oh, thank God it's there, and I eat the apple and I go back to bed. And then the next day I'm fucked because my body's like recovering from this. Uh, so that is a huge proponent to how I'm going to feel the next day. But while that's all happening, I'm still trying to be like, remember, like, remember why you're here. Like you want to, you want to represent yourself well and you want to represent the company you're here on behalf of, or if it's your band, you want to people that bought tickets to see the show, you want to, you know, but for me, man, my health is the number one thing that sort of dictates how my day is going to go which makes sense right that's a pretty big part of what's going on but just that damn number because it's not just a number that number represents discipline it represents health it represents you know how are you going to feel tomorrow because it's usually like the next day I, I feel it if it's a high or low so you know i have to make sure when i'm trying and that's that's actually to, to go a little further with that during the covid being home for a few months 
it's been fine because I've just really been able to focus on the numbers, you know, those numbers really, really heavily. And that's not going away. So it's like, you got to get a handle on that shit. You don't want to lose a foot. <laughs> to me, the best thing about COVID has, uh, there's, there were some uh, health issues I wanted to fix. Gave me the time to do it. Good for you. In order to keep yourself optimal, I guess, a lot of the things I needed to fix were as a result of traveling all the time and not being able to get into a good routine. What do you do to keep yourself optimal? Obviously, sounds like the rock and roll lifestyle will not work for you. No, impossible. I'd be dead by now. <laughs> yeah. So you have to keep yourself disciplined, which is extra hard when traveling. What do you do? Like, I'll give you an example of what happens if I'm not disciplined. So I ran out. I was I, I was in the uh, airport in, in Hong Kong at that really beautiful airport, that huge one. And I'm in the lounge and I'm sitting there and I'm eat, eating something. And I, I, had a, I had a dish that I didn't realize they didn't. Usually in the lounge, they put, you know, if you fly enough, you visit enough of these stupid lounges where the, the, you just have that bad coffee and the horrible vegetables and just this. <laughs> but they always list the fucking ingredients, like just these horrible lounges. You're like, oh my God. They list the ingredients like it's got this and this. And as a diabetic, I always look, okay, cool. There's no low carb. There's no sugar. Okay. And I sat down, I ate something. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm okay. Well, this meal's got no carbs in it, so it's fine. My blood sugar's at this amount, this plus this food, I should be fine. I didn't have any insulin left, so I'm like, okay. The problem there is, okay, I have, I have X amount of time to get home, you know, 20 hours until I get home. I don't have any more insulin, so I gotta either not eat anything for the next 20 hours or be very specific and drink a lot of water. What happened was the dish had something in it they didn't list, and my blood sugar fucking shot through the roof. Like, for example, if a blood sugar is supposed to be, I think the UK uses the same system we do, but the American system is a little different, but it's supposed to be between basically four and eight. Mine was probably at 17 at this point. So that's Oof. very high. You're basically diabetic if you're like at eight, essentially, if you're not, I'm not a doctor, but I, I can be relatively safe in saying that's too high. Playing one on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what happened was I checked my blood sugar when I was in the seat and I'm like, oh, fuck. So what I had to do, listen to this shit, I had to go into the bathroom on the flight and I started doing jumping jacks and push-ups. Wait, wait, how did you do push-ups in the on an airplane bathroom? It was big enough, it was a it was a big craft. In the in the airplane, I like had to put my legs on the wall and I like and I put toilet paper all down on the floor. I'm doing push-ups in the bathroom. And then I'm doing things where I'm like leaning against the wall and like doing those leg stand things. So your core mm -hmm. and my heart's I'm soaked, dripping with sweat. I come out of the, imagine this is comedy. Imagine seeing someone come out of the washroom <laughs> on an airplane bathroom after you've heard all that commotion. He comes out with sweat, and he's red. Like I sit down in my seat. My blood sugar dropped. It was down to like nine. It went down seven points. And I was like, Fuck. so I waited a bit. I went back and did a little bit more and I got it down to like six. But then what started happening was my blood sugar started dropping, kept dropping, kept dropping too low. Now it's down to three and I'm shaking and I'm, I have to call the flight attendant over to get some food and she's got nothing but like pretzels. I eat the pretzels. Blood sugar goes too fucking high again. Starts to go up too high. So like I'm just in this fucking groundhog day of hell of blood sugar right so i'm just like oh and like that's what happens and i still have like nine hours of this flight left so I'm, i know i know what my destiny is at that point my destiny is the balance beam which is what i call it you know the balance beam like okay oh, too high okay bring it <laughs> so so that's what happens if you're not 
on the ball. Like that's that's you should never run out of insulin. You should know what you're eating, et cetera, et cetera. What does it mean to be not disciplined for you? So could you define what what is not disciplined Nick like? Not disciplined me, first of all, is the the thought of blood sugar is not the first thing I'm always thinking about. The second that's not like there has since I became type one diabetic, you know, whatever, ten years or so, uh, it has been the only thing like if if you if you think of a video game where you're aiming down sights and that reticle that's that reticle is blood sugar like that's all and then everything else is what you see after it's like music you know taking a shit that's all after right but like blood sugar it's like there it is okay fucking it's focused it's just in in front of me like even right now as we're talking all i'm thinking about in the back of my mind is like time did i eat what did i eat it's just it's ridiculous so i don't mean to complain because it's really not as bad as something as like as a cancer. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I'm not complaining. I don't think you're I, complaining. I swear to God. But anyway, um, just to kind of go on, I typically eat, like if I'm touring or traveling, like catering or if there's, which there's no catering ever in the, the, the level of touring I do. But like if the, there's a rider in backstage, there's like a bunch of bags of chips and a 12 pack of beer. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go find a Whole Foods. Like that's what I have to do. Or I'm going to go to Walmart and I'm going to get a bag of broccoli and eat it with a plain yogurt. That's what I'm going to eat. Like, that that's my life because I can't eat sugar unless I take a lot of insulin but the problem no carbs so a lot of stuff that I don't eat and people go well you don't have to be that stringent Nick it's, you're diabetic it's like okay that's what works for you but for me who's always traveling has to be laser focused with it it, it could be the difference of going on stage and dropping to a three and not being able to hold a pick versus like you know being a little bit high so the show you sweat a bit in the sugar arcs down a little bit in the middle of the show i had one on that uh, actually that that plenty tour john that i met you we were playing in uh portland and i remember going right before we went on stage like three minutes before we went on stage i was just like oh fuck and like i had the guitar on my and it felt like it weighed a thousand pounds my arms were so heavy and then i just like ran to the back and there was a banana Bananas are so high in sugar, so like it's diabetic. I avoid them unless I'm like on death's door, basically, not to be too dramatic. But I ate the banana, and then within like 15 minutes, I had to postpone my set a little bit. I was like, okay, good to you know, fucking good to go. It was just like, in fact, it was such a big obstacle that my my doctor. I'll tell you the story of how it all happened. My doctor, um, my endocrinologist, the basically metabolism doctor, said to me like, okay, you know, you're, you're diabetic now, and uh, we need to take you to the hospital, and um, you probably can't tour anymore. Or at all. Because I was doing a little bit of traveling when I was in my early 20s and they kind of wanted me to stop. And I said, I have to go to, uh, I had to go to, like, I think Germany the next day. I had a flight the next day. And he's like, no, you can't. You, you have to you cancel it. You have to go to the hospital and we have to get your sugar down and put out the fire, essentially. And I was like, no. He's like, I can't force you to. So whatever you want to do, here's your insulin. So I remember I flew. I didn't go to the hospital. Fuck that. Because I wanted to do this trip. <laughs> I'm in my seat and there's a guy. We, I, it was one of those rare flights where, you know, that Frankfurt flight, the Lufthansa one, I'm sure, John, you've done a bunch of times where you get in there and like, well, you're closer to the UK. What am I talking about? You're, you're not that far from, from Germany. You don't have to do that overnight flight. But um, there, was the seat, there was the seat in between us, which was, which was open. So I was like, cool. And I remember like pulling my needles out the first time and like putting the, the needle head on there. Like, oh, fuck. And, you know, and like the guy's like, what the fuck? And like figuring out how to administer the insulin and like pricking my thumb and blood and <laughs> fucking it up and like blood just all, oh shit. And like wiping it up. And like the guy was probably like, and I was just figuring out how to, 
how to diabetes, basically. You know, and I took too much at one point, and my blood just dropped, and I had to get some food. Man, it was crazy. But just um, what I'm saying is like, regardless of what I need to to what I need to get me to that point where I'm optimal, like it has not stopped me from pursuing this, and it, it it will not as long as it's something you're responsible with. I can't go out. I don't drink beer, you know, because it's just carbs. And when you drink beer, or you drink. I drink a little bit of a little bit of wine every so often, maybe gin, which has no carbs, no sugar, so you can have some of that or vodka. But I'm never, I'm never hammered. I never get like drunk, drunk. I never get inhibitions low enough to where I go, fuck it, I'll have pizza tonight. It's like, don't do it because you can't get to that point because then the next two to three days, you're just, you're just trying to get back on, on top of it. You're just, you're, you're, you know. Um, you know what, fuck, I was going to name some names, but I don't want to do that. But there were some musicians that one guy, last couple of years, he died from not taking care of his, famous musician, he died, singer, from not taking care of his diabetes. And I was actually about to say that, dude, that I've known diabetics. It can happen, man. Who eat pizza and just you don't say- die from you don't die from diabetes, you die from complications from diabetes, you know, like yes. stroke or you have uh, seizures and you hit your head and they find you passed out, you, you, just, you just die, you just, you're dead. Because your your heart and your brain need good blood pressure and need blood sugar. Without blood sugar, man, like having a low. And I'm sure you guys deal with your own shit. So I could say you don't know what it's like to have a low blood sugar, but like it's fucked. To have a real low blood sugar is f- so fucked up, man. It's like it happens every so often. I don't even know my own name. I don't know my fucking name, dude. It's like and I don't know where I am. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like. What the fuck? It's crazy, dude. It's fucking crazy. So anyway, just trying to be trying to be on top of it because I I love I I do love traveling. I do love touring as much as there's ups and downs. We talked about that, but I do love it because because it feels like uh, I'm getting to experience something I I always you know was working towards or want or, or was dreaming about doing. Diabetes will not the, the fuck out of here. Get get out of here. You, you will not stop me. You know. <laughs> I think that that's impressive. I know lots of people who have issues that they don't let the issue define them no way man no way it's just a matter of adjusting your lifestyle to to make it work if if you want something bad enough exactly dude and if anyone feels weird about it, it's like oh man i feel like this is gonna stop me it's like some things yeah let's be real some things will probably make you have to stop sleeping on a bandwagon <laughs> but is that a really a bad thing no um uh, but but it it's it is quite nice. It is quite nice. But a lot of stuff, it's like people are afraid to talk. I've had injuries too. Like I've had bad tendonitis and like all sorts of bad shit where I've had to just stop playing. And it's like, man, people don't want to talk. A lot of people just don't want to admit. It's like, we're just bags of meat and water, dude. Like shit's going to go wrong. It's just how you approach it. You're just a big old bag of water, man. It's not, it's not a big deal. I completely, completely respect that. Obviously, like you said, there are some things that uh, are too severe to, Yes, you know, so that aside, okay, so let's just say that aside so that nobody comes after me for saying this. I really do think that if something is manageable, if you do let it get in the way, then that's fine. That's your choice. But it just means you didn't want what you were going to do bad enough. And that's fine. I feel people should just be honest with themselves. It is totally fine. I actually at one point considered just, I was like, yeah, maybe I should just stop, you know, stop traveling. And I kind of made a, a mental sort of two category chart where it's like pros and cons. You know, I kind of did that. And ultimately the, the, the pros outweighed the cons by a little bit. It's just like, I got too much I, I need to see. And I, 
too much, you know, for me, dude, the, I, I'm so lucky with, with Schechter when I get to travel with them. The food I get to eat, that's like, oh my God. I think about going to, you know, Italy and going to Parma and eating that aged Parmesan okay. cheese. I'm like, okay, I got to go. It's worth just that first bite of Parmesan, just that hunk of cheese, you know, and the some of that fish and some of that meat. You're like, okay, I, I'm going to keep traveling. <laughs> okay, so speaking, change gears a little bit. You were talking about how you don't know what gear you're going to play. And uh, that brings up the whole topic of tone in the hands versus tone in the gear. Right. The age-old debate. <laughs> yeah. So where, where do you stand on it? Because obviously when you go and do these clinics and you don't know what you've got in front of you, you still got to make it work. Whereas when you're in the studio, you probably are in the most ideal of circumstance. What keeps it sounding Nick Johnson no matter what? You know, every time this this topic comes up i feel like i have the an answer to it but it changes so much and and i feel depending on where my confidence is as a player i can answer i can answer it and sometimes i'm like how do i approach it or or what was i thinking when i was doing this and it, it a lot of it is just like the mentality of that it's it's like it's just smoke through my fingers i don't i don't have a, a an obvious response to that because a huge part of it is is just like being comfortable in your setting, like just letting yourself, just submitting to like, oh, this is what I have. This is what I'm going to use and just making decisions based on that rather than I wish I had this. I wish I had that. It's like, well, you don't. Are you going to, what are you going to do? You do not have it. Um, I grew up basically playing one guitar, just essentially one guitar. And I had different amps over the years. And the one thing I noticed was over enough time, I can't get every amp to sound the same it's just I couldn't do it but what I could control was like when the guitar was unplugged just by itself it's like my vibrato always sounds the same my tone my rhythms okay so what does that mean it's like I change the thought process to play to the tone versus this is how I play why is the tone reacting to it like if I have a low gain amp I'm going to play shit that sounds good with a low gain amp like I'm going to I'm going to learn how to do that now in my style of music where it's not it's not super riffy and relies on a on a tight gate or relies on a lot of gain like i can get away with with playing blues your stuff on an orange amp or i can do it on a kemper or i can do it on an axe effects or i can do it on a, a hot rod and it just whatever it doesn't matter i've used just about every every amp on on a tour somewhere somewhere in the world where the distributor didn't have mesa or the distributor didn't have Friedman or whatever, whatever amp you were using at the time. We got a uh, we got a orange amp with a busted gain channel, but we got a tube screamer. I'm like, okay, okay, we're gonna see what happens tonight, <laughs> you know. And and I've gotten through it. And whether or not I sounded good, I do what I can. It's like I try my best. A huge part of it is, to, is just to not let it scare you. I think it's just embrace it, see what happens to your playing, see what changes. Maybe you'll surprise yourself. A lot of what I do on that instrumental stuff is it's my shit is it's it's all lead guitar it's all melodies and and um a few riffy parts but not nothing like what you're doing with with monuments or with flux john some solos and then a lot of times in, in the clinic world because in the, in the touring with the band i i have an usually an amp backline so i'm fine but what i've learned to do and this has changed my playing completely is a lot of time at the clinics i will just play solo guitar for the whole night i'll just improvise just without no tracks no songs i'll spend two hours I'll go up and I'll play, just improvise for 15 minutes, shoot the shit with, with the crowd, play some more. And shoot, you know, like, 
And what that has done is it's made me go like, let's see if I can captivate or hold people's attention just as what I have as a, as a musician without my tracks and stuff like that, which is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And it's definitely come a long way. But when I, when I kind of go into it with that mindset, I'm not as worried about the gear anymore because I'll just do a sound check and be like, okay, I can make, fuck it. I'll just play clean tonight. And it's like, okay, now everything I'm playing is, is clean. It's like, that's my whole night right there. I'll just play with a clean tone. Or, oh, that's a British tone I, have, I haven't used in, in a while. How does it sound when I play and then I'll switch to the back pickup? Oh, oh shit, there's a lot of noise here. So let me move to, oh, okay, the noise is gone. This is where I'm going to stand tonight. So I'm going to play. Like, you just kind of make it work. You, you use this attitude of, I can do this. That positive attitude, you know. That reminds me of something. Uh, speaking of Ingve, so we brought him up earlier. I used to know him a lot when I was a teenager. He worked with my dad, actually, on Magnum Opus. That's so funny. No way. It's true. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 absolutely true. What's your father's name again? Eric's Eric's mentioned your father's before. Yoel Levy. That's right. That's right. He's mentioned him. Yeah. He he conducted Magnum Opus. I was uh, on Ingve's tour bus once. It was like 17 or something, and he was warming up for a show, and it was like he was playing through a like a pig nose or something, <laughs> and he sounded exactly like Ingve. Well, that was the first time that I realized that gear's cool, but it only takes you so far. It I mean, does, he literally yeah. sounded exactly like Ingve, and you think of Ingve as like playing through Marshalls with those with his Strat and all that in a certain type of tone and the guitar players rigs are very much idolized but here i am in a bus with this dude playing through this piece of shit little thing and he sounds exactly like himself i feel like gear is nice but at the end of the day you sound like you anywhere you go okay so like the you mentioned just gear in general and the guitar players and idolizing the gear a point of pride for me i i don't often like to admit this because it sounds kind of egotistical but like a point of pride for me it was always i don't use i don't use a lot of shit i could just take my guitar with me and a, and a suitcase and that's my rig it's like oh whatever you want to like that's I always, awesome because i always loved my favorite guitar players growing up i know he used a bit of sauce but i love that eddie you know he basically was plugging into a hot rodded amp i love stevie ray vaughn had that real simple Kind of rig. Jeff Back had a very, you know, dual super lead and a couple pedals, but he turned the tone knob all the way down. Like his sound was that amp, and just these guys were. I, I feel like their hand was sort of the effects processor, was the was the mothership, was the pedal board, was their hand, you know. And I love to play with the tone knob a lot. I like to play with the five way blade a lot. The volume, I'm constantly adjusting the volume, constantly because I feel like. That on the guitar, like that whole part of the guitar is the engine room. It's like there's so many different, there's so many different layers of EQing, and especially if you have really dialed in pickups, you can do so much with just the EQing and the volume knob, with the way that the arc of the cue basically rolls off differently, and which pickup you're using, and how hard you're hitting. You may play the whole show on on six, but then it's like, oh, I need that gain boost, okay? And then there's your, you know, I always was like, that's that's an ideal situation for me. I, I love that. I love that idea. But that's what turned me into the player that I am. Like, if I was to play in a different band and do something, like, I couldn't do it in a different band. It works. It's like, oh, people say, oh, you're good. You play guitar. It's like, what band do you know? You play this. It's like, I play my music. It's like, that's how my music is played. I play the, the guitar in my band. It's like, 
I don't know if I could do that and have it work in it. Like if John was like, Hey Nick, we, we need you to fill in for Ollie on this tour. Like, could you, I'm like, I don't, I couldn't do it, dude. I just, I could not do it. You know, what's up to Ollie. Love that guy. <laughs> so it's like, that works for, for me and for, for what I do. You know, it's just, it's always been a point of focus. I want to be able to make that work with minimal gear. And even in the studio, it's like one guitar, pretty simple. <laughs> Whether or not that puts me into a corner, maybe I'll change one day. So what I'm understanding is you make your sound work no matter the situation, but like it's like very much you at all times. Right, so right, right. when you do a solo on somebody's record where I guess maybe they have some expectations, is there a balance beam for that? No. <laughs> there is not. I give them they they go here okay, here's the part and if I okay, I'll play on it and then I'll send them the the track and it's like I'll give them just a dry, you know, just a this is what I thought would sound. This is how I would want to hear myself on this track. And here you go. And they're like, okay. <laughs> I never go like, do you want like a humbucking? No. It's like this is, this is how I play. And that's what I think maybe is. It's a little close-minded or whatever, but that's how I play guitar. It's like that's just my particular sound, and I'm comfortable doing that. I when I'm tracking the solo, I feel like that's when you're going to get the best out of me. When I'm comfortable with how I sound, when it sounds like me, usually improvise and usually. Like, okay, I'll give you an example. I did this solo years ago for for this band called Polyphia, and the song oh, yeah. got a lot of heat, got a lot of traction. It was um, a song called Champagne. And I remember giving them basically the first pass at a solo. It was like, here's the first thing I did. Because this is one of the first real guest solos. And they're like, this is great. We love it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So they wanted me. That's why they asked me. They wanted my guitar playing. So I just, I don't know. That was kind of, and I'm not a studio guy. I did one session with a, actually I did it with a really, it's funny you mentioned Tool. I did this session on this record with David Bottrell. He invited me in to play guitar on this record in, in Toronto. And that was when I had to do more of what you're saying. Like, is there a balance beam? Will you change your tone? David was in there fucking with the sounds and, okay, try this part or see if you can change this. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't like this. I do not like this at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still had fun, but it wasn't like, that's something I want to actively pursue. That's the camp I'm in right now with that stuff. <laughs> So you don't like working with an engineer? I like working with an engineer when it's more so my stuff. If I'm just giving a guest solo, like, okay, we want you to play it. Give me a solo for this record. That would be like, here's what I'm presenting to you. This is like the sound I like. And I mean, I'm not going to give them like a super high gain sound if it's like a folky track where it's like got more of a 70s influence. Like I would obviously use a little bit of common sense, but it's never a tone where I'm going... Why the fuck is there so? Why do you want so much chorus? It sounds like shit. Like, add, you can add the chorus later. You, you do what you want to the. Here's the signal. You you fuck with it later. That that yeah. That's typically my approach. Is just as long as I'm driving with the sound. And again, it's like, why did you ask me if if you didn't want my particular sound? Yeah, exactly. If they wanted something else, go to the person who does that thing. Yeah, go to Brent Mason who does like all the stuff. <laughs> that happens to mixers all the time. Oh like, my they'll god, go I can only to, imagine. I can only imagine. Yeah, like they'll go to someone like Kurt Ballou and want him to do a Joey Sturgis style mix, and it's like, why don't you just go to Joey yeah. if you want a Joey style That's mix? Right. That happens a lot actually to mixers and producers, uh, where bands just. They want them to sound like somebody else. Man, that that actually is going to leave. I had a question for you, because the world you live in is such a mystery to me. To me, you know, mixing and the process and the because there is also a, a balance beam aspect to mixing too, and knowing when you feel something is 
done because when I write, I feel like at some point I just abandon <laughs> the song. Like it's never done, right? It's like fuck it, this this is enough. Yeah. And what was it about mixing and and the process? Like what was it that made you go, yeah, this is the thing. It was never the thing. So when I was like twenty or something, and I had a band. Like I was studying intensely how to get signed. I wanted to get signed to a big label. And so I was studying, which happened eventually because I got my band signed to Roadrunner. But that was like my mission, get signed, playing extreme metal to a large label, which is like impossible, was impossible. <laughs> and so I started studying all that stuff. And uh, I came to the conclusion that you needed to have something that sounded incredible. Whereas back in those days, People would say, just send a demo. An A&R guy can just understand the difference. Now, that's different now. You can't just send a shitty demo. But back then, it was like an accepted wisdom that you could just send it and they would understand. And I thought that was full of shit. So I wanted a great recording. And I started going to like really good studios. And then I priced it out and was like, to do this right, I'm going to need like $40,000. And that's not going to happen. So I may as well learn how to do it. That's literally all it was. It was just in service of putting out my own music. And then I guess I also saw it as like something that could feed my band. So basically if I could attract signed bands to my studio in the early two thousands, then maybe I could get them to take my band on tour. And then through my band going on tour, I could get people into the studio. So it was never because production was like a passion. It was more a means to an end. And that's it. It worked out exactly that way. But I guess I don't ever think I got great at it, but I think I didn't suck at it enough to end up getting good gigs. And uh, when I realized that my band was like a dead end, I mean, it was a cool band, but it was a dead end. And I was like 30 and I got this really good opportunity for production. I just, I went with it. But within a year of doing that, I knew I wanted to start URM or something. So yeah, mixing like as a career was never my thing. And I never thought I was that great. I always thought I was like, maybe I could have gotten incredible, but it would have taken years more and I didn't want to. And there are dudes that I know who want to and it's kind of like with the guitar thing, like you have to be cool to sit there for those eight hours. I wasn't, it just, it wasn't in me, but, but however, what was in me was taking all the expertise from the band, from music, from recording and putting it together into like URM and riff hard. So yeah, it wasn't ever the thing. It's just, I didn't think that I had a future in a band because to me, it was either the band is Slipknot size or I'm not interested. Right. And I guess that sounds fucked up. But like, I'm just being honest. Like, I always have wanted to do things on a grand scale. Like, that's kind of just how my brain is wired. And so being in a band the size of my band was not good enough. And then also, we would tour with bands that were bigger than us and share buses. And then I'd look at how they lived and I'd be like, so... Best case scenario, we get as big as this band. And that still sucks. (laughs) So, like, do I... No, but here's the thing. I know know that for a lot of people, that's fine. So you just got to be honest with yourself about what you want in life. If you're cool with that, that's fine. But if you're not cool with that, you got to, like, own up to it or you're going to be miserable. The thing that matters is knowing yourself. And so, yeah, production was a means to an end, but it, it was also a means... It was as much a means to an end for my band as it was for starting URM. 
So yeah, it's it's never been the thing. If that makes sense. That totally makes sense, yeah. I can tell you this. Uh, I put out, Amel and I did an instrumental record in 2009 or 10 called Avalanche of Worms. I remember seeing the ad for it in a Guitar World, mag- I believe. Yeah, Guitar World loved it. But it came out on Magna Carta Shrapnel, and that was cool. But honestly, I mean, Mike Farney is one of those people who can see the future. Right. But the budget they gave us, I could have just paid for. And also, oh. I paid the publicist out of my pocket oh, okay, too. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's why I got in Guitar World. So yeah. it was very cool to have someone like Mike Varney give the green light because it's like, you know, it's just cool. Yeah, it is cool. And it also, I guess, gave us the confidence to do it. Yep. I don't think we would have done it otherwise because it was like we were in Doth, we were doing that, and then we didn't think why don't we just make an instrumental record? And then that came along and it was like, all right, let's make an instrumental record. But had we done instrumental music from the beginning, we could have funded it ourselves too and done it. For sure. I mean, however, you look at an example like Animals as Leaders and I'm sure that their label has done a shit ton for them. More than likely. Yeah, more than likely. But dude. There was Sumeria, right? Sumerian, yeah. And that, that label pushes their bands. But I mean, have you ever wanted to be on a label? No, 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 no. I just don't like paperwork. <laughs> just keep it away. Just keep the paperwork <laughs> away from me. <laughs> Can we talk about this a little? Like, I think that's fascinating because a lot of... Absolutely, yeah. Whatever you want. There's not that many artists that are indie who are who have done it on their own. Someone recently who did it on their own was, uh, you know, Jason Richardson. He put out his album on his own and fucking killed it, but... This is kind of like something that people talk about being the ideal. Like it's kind of like this, this like fantasy for musicians to be able to do it without the industry, but it's almost impossible. So that said, how did you approach it? Like, did you approach it with a plan or did you just put shit out and it grew? Like, okay, so I put the first one out around 2010. I remember around that time, everybody was starting to kind of role pretty strong with with youtube and you know people putting out a weekly video like and some of them were at that time quite impressive production and subscribers started to become a thing how many subs do you have oh, i got x amount of subs like this i started to know like what because i didn't really i went on youtube i watched youtube videos and you know a guitar player archive sean lane footage like oh fuck look at this thing. you know you find like hidden gems right but i never had a youtube channel uh, i didn't have a, a facebook page I didn't have, I don't even know if Instagram was around in 2010. I don't remember. You could fact check that. I have no clue, but I didn't have one. I think 2013 or 12. Right, right. So I didn't have I didn't have any social media. So what happened was I was making an album because I wanted one. <laughs> I wanted an album. I just wanted to have a collection of music. Like like a weird like kind of posterity thing like you know what I I wrote a bunch of shit and I I, uh, I did demos a couple rounds of demos I showed it to friends I, I got a couple thousand bucks I've saved up from teaching I'll go into the studio on this weekend with the band and I'll just we'll cut it and we did I had a, a drummer I'd recently become friends with just through a bunch of circumstances and and watching his videos on YouTube you guys maybe know Travis Orban you guys know Travis yeah yeah. I, I don't know him, but I know exactly who he is, yeah. Yeah, so cool guy, and we just hit it off. And so he played on the first album, and the other guys, guitar and bass and myself, we just went in in the weekend, 
did the album. And it sounds like it. It's a very low production. Just In fact, the production was done with a guy, the engineer. He didn't want us to use click because he thought playing with a click was too modern, which I thought was um, a very, very silly idea. So we said to him, I said to him, uh, I, I, I want uh, click, please. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had it and I got it fully produced and I got the CD. I remember the CDs came to the house and I remember the moment I, I grabbed it and I opened it up, I was like, wow. And then it dawned on me, I was like, now what? <laughs> I was like, oh, oh shit. Got to do something with these. And then I realized, I'm like, oh fuck, that was all the easy part. <laughs> that was all the easy part. Writing the music was free. Recording it was not free, but it was fun and I understood it. I didn't have to learn anything new that much. Then there was a whole thing of like, oh my God, now I have to learn about like distribution and marketing and promoting and putting myself out there and just like this whole thing so the first record not selling literally not one copy when it came out was a really really amazing self-awareness kind of i learned why or even better nobody owes you shit like nobody nobody cares about your music like nobody owes you anything like why would they why would they care it's just a fucking nether guitar anyway so Nobody cares, yeah. Nobody cares. I started a YouTube channel and just put up some clips of me playing. I started a Facebook page. And I remember when I got to 100 likes, I was like, holy fuck. I put everything on, I think it was CD Baby I was using because I had a buddy that was using it. Put everything out there. And it just was out there. I'm like, okay, cool. It's out there. Then I learned that, oh shit, you have to make content regularly. Oh no, fuck. So that became a whole thing where it's like, I guess I should get a camera. And like that became a whole thing where I was like, okay, I guess this is my destiny now. <laughs> and then I had saved up a little bit of money in the meantime. And I'm going to tell you a bit of a story. This might be a little long-winded, but I'm just going to tell the story. So then after dealing with Travis, we kept talking. It, it turns out he was working at a studio in, in Bethesda, Maryland called, uh, I think it was Ocean Studios or something like that. A guy, Taylor Larson's studio. Yep. And Travis always tracked with Taylor at, at his place. And so... You know, I, I live in a small Canadian town. I was like, fuck it. I've saved up some cash. I got a credit card. I'm going to max the credit card out and I'm going to do another album. I'm going to spend, I'm going to actually put some thought into this. I'm going to film some of the sessions and I'm going to do the whole thing. So I loaded up the car with a buddy of mine and we drove down in January of 2012, I think, or 2013, doesn't matter. We drove down to Maryland. We drove down to Bethesda. And what was interesting was we drove down there and I was like, oh, I realized we haven't booked anywhere to stay. So we ended up sleeping in Taylor's basement and Taylor got really sick in the sessions. I remember he was, he couldn't be there for any of them. He was coughing up blood. He was really sick. And it was just a whole, the whole session was just like, <laughs> this fuck. It was like, and, and Hell. I don't want to throw anybody Hell under session. the bus. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But anyway, but what happened was, and this was a, the second album I did. Now I had sent, it's, you know, interesting talking about demo tape stuff. I had sent a song off that first album and then I looked at that first album as sort of a business card. I sent a song off to two guitar players I really loved, a guy named Paul Gilbert and a really big guitar player at the just, time. Just some random some dude random named guy Paul Guthrie. And Guthrie yeah. Govan, these two guys. I had their email through a mutual contact and they both responded and they said uh, they would play on my second album. And I was, you know, being whatever, 23, 24 at the time, I was like... Uh, what, what? Excuse me? What? <laughs> it wasn't cheap. Let me just say that. But I got them to play on the record. <laughs> and then uh, the last day of tracking in a locked room on the moon, this album, 
a guy named Spencer Satello was going to come by. Taylor told me my friend Spencer from from Periphery. I, I knew a little bit about Periphery. Periphery 2 had just come out, and I thought it was a pretty cool-sounding record. I was like, wow, it sounds really massive for, for, um, for this genre of music I just kind of discovered. I don't know if, if there's a new word for that genre sidebar. Is it, do we still call it gent? Or is it, has that changed or no? I, I don't know. Is it just metal now? or? I think it's gent, but people who are afraid of that word call it progressive metal or something. Progressive metal. But it's gent. It's gent, okay. So regardless, so I met these guys, and I didn't know much, right? so I'm like, okay, I'll meet this guy Spencer. And he was there, and he listened to some of the records. I just, and he, he was like, this is great. And then he asked me to start a band with him. So we started this little project called The Mothership, which didn't go anywhere, but we were in touch. Then... Because that didn't go anywhere. He asked me if I wanted to play on a Periphery album. So they were putting this this EP out called Clear. I ended up playing on one of the songs off of Clear. There's a guitar solo on one of the songs. And uh, what happened then was the ball started rolling. Like, you know, obviously I go from just kind of, I was playing a Strat all the time, being a Strat guy, and but then being thrust into a fan base that Periphery had. So they see this guy playing Strat and they're like, who the fuck is this guy playing some, some bluesy stuff? And uh, I got this new kind of scenario that my name was sort of being dragged through a little bit, like Periphery and Nick, Nick guy. Blah, blah. And then it was further pushed the next year, and this was 2000, NAM of 2014, so January of 2014. I was standing in the Hilton, uh, you know, it's a mess in there at NAM time, right? it's an absolute <laughs> fucking mess. Yep. So I'm standing there back near the elevators, and these four kids come up to me. And I remember they all looked the same. They had backwards hats on and they pulled out all at the same time, like business cards or whoosh, and had a P on it. I was like, Polyphia. They're like, hey, we're this band Polyphia. We love what you did. That was my second name. So I was still like, what the fuck? And uh, they gave me this and they said, we're Polyphia. We're, we want to, we love what you did on the per, uh, Periphery album. We'd love to play on the song that we're putting out. I was like, okay. I, I'd never, I didn't know anything about them. And then uh, I went home and I did a solo for them and gave it to them and then they flew me to Texas to be in the video, and that video got millions of views. And again, I was the Strat guy, so they were playing guitar. You know, I was again that guy with just just the Strat guy, and my name started kind of getting attached. To that then I put in an album called Atomic Mind, which there's the band the Aristocrats. You know that band, their uh, instrumental yeah. band. Yeah. So Brian and Marco, they were my band for that album. So Marco and Brian were the were the rhythm section on Atomic Mind, and Guthrie did a bunch of guitar solos. So just from meeting and talking and email and shit got all these guys on there and it started to kind of take a little bit more and this is my third album by the way i've made a dollar third album still not making any money i'm just like okay i guess how many years how many years uh of since the first since the first this was four years which is it's not it's not that long but it's a lot i spent (laughs) oh my god I backed a credit card and paid off that credit card with another credit card. That's yeah. the level of debt I was in at this point. Yeah, you can you can drop a lot of cash in four years. And that's four years after like 10 years of playing? This is four years after 10 or 11 years. Yeah, exactly. So I'm pretty far down okay, the rabbit yeah. hole. Yeah, so about 15 years. Pretty in. far down the rabbit hole. And then this is where I got in touch with Schechter. Keith Marrow and Jeff Loomis liked some of the stuff off of um because this is when conquering dystopia came out right, right around this time oh, what's his face audio hammer um he was involved in that i think or someone i think mixing it or something anyway so there was this big community of guys that it, my name had kind of been circling around different genres and then keith and jeff had signature guitars with Schechter, and they 
I wasn't with any company. I didn't have a single endorsement with nobody because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And then they got me in touch with Schechter. Schechter started taking me all over the world as as a as their new guy because they were launching the custom shop and I got involved. And they be, sort of made me the face of the custom shop. And then uh, the next album I put out, because this is 2016, I put an album called Remarkably Human, which I managed to get my all-time favorite drummer, well, next to Jeff Picaro, Gavin Harrison played on this record. And... Uh, he had just gotten home from a tour with King Crimson and, and I had gotten in touch with him and he's like, I sent him a couple of tracks and he's like, yeah, I'll do it. Sure, no problem. And then that album came out and that's that song and a bunch of video stuff, that's when I noticed it was like a click. It was like, oh, okay. And now when people got on board with that, they now had three records to go back to and a bunch of stuff. It was like a, a snowball effect. And I'd done a lot of, like, I think I did a hundred the, that year, the, I think I did like 126 flights that year traveling. Like it was, it was like one flight every two days. It was ridiculous. So I was like, I put in the time. I was going hard, going hard, and was I wasn't home. I was never home. I, poor girlfriend I was with at the time. She was just like, I can't, I can't fucking live like this. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> are you coming or are you going? What's happening here? It wasn't ever a, a noticeable thing that people were even remotely interested in what I did until. I started to see just like I put it. I always release my music for free. Here it is. Just take it. If you want to pay, buy it. You can buy it. But just just take it. It's in front of you. Because uh, I noticed that's how I was sort of digesting newer music too. It's like I want to hear it before I buy it because I want to know what I'm getting with YouTube streams or Spotify and Apple Music. So I just did the same. Here, just take it. If you want it, fuck it. And then uh, I noticed the numbers. The first day, the numbers doubled and doubled again. I'm like, holy shit. And then I did one more album, which came out last year, called uh, Wide Eyes in the Dark, with Eric. Eric did all the keys on that, and this drummer Benny Greb. And uh, it just, you know, it's just been just slowly growing. It's just been a, a whatever twenty odd year, twenty year or so process of just trial and error. And the main thing was was I owned everything, and if it, if it went well, it went well for me. If it didn't, then I lost a lot of money. And I, I've just kind of maintained that mentality, you know, and I. Again, it's like I'm going to keep going with it. And I'm doing it. Actually, I was talking to John before the podcast. I'm doing this new project with a friend of mine. I want to try something different. Uh, we're both going to sing on it. I'm going to sing on this record. Got this really great drummer, this really great session drummer out of uh, Los Angeles, a guy named Aaron Sterling. He played on everything. He plays with like, you know, Lana Del Rey and John May. Like, he's just got these old. Bo- yeah, I've heard of that guy. Yeah, he's great. Oh, he's fantastic. Big bottom sound, like the huge kick drum, big. Just big natural like manhole cover hi hats you know there's just fucking huge high, just beautiful sound and it's just because it's like I got I want to try it I want to try some shit and if it doesn't go well I don't expect it to go well because it's it's me singing but I gotta give it a shot give it a shot you know and I'm always working on instrumental stuff but um, it's just been a slow burn and, and a bunch of really interesting coincidences that just seem to kind of line up but I really believe the House of Cards. Um, or the the domino effect, I should say, happened from from just taking that risk and and going to to Maryland because that's when I met some of those guys that had a lot of periphery had a lot of heat online at that time too. I don't know if you remember, like fa- everyone was using Facebook at the time when periphery would put up even a stupid little status, it would be like a thousand shares. The heat has not died down. It has not died down. Exactly. Exactly. It has not died down. It was a good kind of as just like this guy doing everything on my own. I had no. I was just like, okay, well, fucking, you know, let's see what happens. Try it out, and and uh, 
I try not to look too closely at the numbers and, and finances about just, I'm just staying focused. Like just stay focused. I don't, I don't really spend money. I don't really do stuff unless I can afford to do it. And I just roll everything back into the business. That's how I look at it. You know, <laughs> it's fun. Awesome. Very, very lucky to have, to have had some of these guys. Yeah. Very, very lucky. Do you know, uh, I can't remember his last name right now. This is so embarrassing. Eric recommends him for a lot of stuff. Kevin, the bass player. Oh, Kevin Scott. Thank you. Kevin Scott played on uh, Wide Eyes and like. He played on Avalanche of Worms too. What a spectacular musician. Like, what a guy. Fuck yeah. He's Incredible. one of the best of the best of the best. Yeah. Amazing. He's an Atlanta dude. Anyways, we've got some questions here for you from our uh, listeners that I'd like to ask you. So I'll just start with this one. Uh, Vaughn Trabelet says, Nick, you're my favorite lead player since I discovered Slash when I was 13 years old. Oh, my God. That's a pedigree. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> How does your approach differ when you're writing final guitar solos for your album versus when you're improvising? And is there anything you specifically listen for when listening back to your performance? Yes. And, and Al, this goes back to what you were asking about an engineer. Do you like tracking or you don't like working with that engineer? The the guy I work with, Scott Giffen, who's done a couple records with me now, he he's a guitar player. Uh, he's a really good friend of mine. And I he's one of these guys, you know, certain musicians, like you you want to work with a with a few guys that you know you can trust their opinion, you respect their opinion. And if they'd say something that is negative or has a little bit of weight behind it or, or is going to deflate your ego you know it's for the right reasons. Like there's certain guys we all have like that and Scott's one of them. Uh, and typically I improvise all the souls. I just, cause that's, I feel like that's just, it's that whole thing of let's just fucking go. Let's just, it's the same shit, right? It's like that whole mentality. But he'll go to me and go like, I think you can do better. And I'm like, okay, I think I, okay. You know what? <laughs> it's like, you can do better there. Uh, that band was flat. Like I get, I get a little bit more into the weeds with, performance and i get more into the weeds not so much i don't write i've i don't write the solo because i find um i find that very tedious and typically the harmony in my solos all the the chord progressions are usually it's just (laughs) i get accused of this from some people like every chord it never was it's like just tension right substitution tension tension drag out drag in bring in and does it resolve and that like it would be it would be very patchworky and very um you know, like rhyme scheme. If I was like you could hear the rhyme scheme over those chord progressions. So I avoid that. I just try to play kind of naturally. But I have him there whispering in my ear, like, "Ah oh, man, I've seen you do better. I've seen you do better." There's there's a take on. Uh, I did this documentary. My buddy Grant shot it of the making of Remarkable Human. There's a take where I'm doing a pass over the solo section, and I get to the end of it and. It's like, oh, it looks like that's the take. And I'm like, oh, shit, let's start it over. And you just hear Scott laugh because it's like he'd been saying that, me, <laughs> saying that to me for like half an hour at that point. It's like, no, again, you know. So that's kind of where I go with it is just like, does it pass the does it pass the test with someone whose opinion that's been working with me at that point? Because we do solos last. That's been working with me under the microscope for a week. Does he go, that works for the song? Because I don't know at that point. I'm so fucking up my own ass that I don't even know what's going on. Sometimes you So it's you, all about trust. Yeah, you need exactly. You need that guy to go, "Oh, that was sick." Or you need that guy to go, "Uh, what do you th-? And then he'll do the thing. He'll go, "What'd you think of that?" <laughs> when he does that, when he does it's like, "So, so so what'd you think of that?" 
but we sometimes he'll comp things like he'll go man i like that first and sometimes the solos are way too fucked. There's a song on Remarkably Human, the song called uh, Fear Had Him By The Throat, and the solo's like a minute and like 20. It's just like, oh my. F- like that's, and if I was writing a solo that's a minute and 26 seconds, like I would just, I'd want to quit music. You know, it's just too long. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's about having that person around that in the kind of heat of battle, so to speak, can kind of just give you that confidence boost or can just say, we, we can do better. That's the whole thing. Having a good team, I think, is is paramount when you're when you're making records. Yep, awesome, man. Well, I think this is a good place to uh, end the episode. Uh, yeah, dude, that was great. Thank you.